working through the book of James. James, Soundness of Soul from the Inside Out. This is part seven. And the title is, The Only Question That Matters, What Does God Think of Our Religion? What does God think of our religion? The text, it's only two verses, 126 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Wow. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray together. We feel blessed that of all the people on earth, we probably have the greatest freedom to gather together and open your word and to hear it. We have it in multiple translations. I pray, Lord Jesus, that somehow that wouldn't cause us to lose sight of its preciousness. We think of someone who had never seen a Bible. We think of someone who had never heard the truth from your word. Help us, Father, to treasure it the way, the way if it was the very first time we turned on a tap and water came out. That we would see the pricelessness of your word. Treasure it in our hearts. We don't want to be a people, however many of us gather, possessing a worthless religion. We want something life-generating, world-embracing, glorifying to God. We love you with all of our hearts today. And if we haven't told you that already, we love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Praise be to your name. And everyone said, man. It's not hard to see the progression of James' thought in these verses. In typical James-like style, he kind of presses his issue with sharper and sharper detail. Receiving the implanted word in verse 21 becomes doing the word in verse 22. And now James is going to carve out three ways to do the word. Each of these areas is mentioned here only briefly, but each of them will be picked up again in the remaining four chapters. So there's a sense in which this text today kind of, kind of sets the tone, opens the page for what James is going to be teaching in the remainder of his letter. So the three areas James is going to cover will be the control of speech, love and concern for the hurting and helpless, and the diligent avoidance of worldliness. I think it's also important to point out that James isn't saying this is all Christians must do. He's not outlining everything Christians must give their attention to, as though uh, Christians don't need to pray, or Christians don't need to read their Bibles, or Christians don't need to evangelize the lost, or Christians don't need to go to church. But what James is doing in these two verses, it's really interesting. He's showing that without these three things... Everything else that we might do is wasted energy. And that's relevant to us. Because we do a lot of things in the name of our faith. 
my prayer to God will go unheeded if my speech is untruthful and unloving. James has already told us that Bible study will be short-lived and it'll be fruitless if the truth of Scripture isn't lived out. If we don't humbly receive the implanted word. And the world will never be reached, at least not for long, by a Christian message that isn't backed up by a transformed life of holiness. Unstained, unspotted in the old King James. By the world around us. Contrary to the popular voice of the postmodern church, the more the church becomes like the world, the less she has to offer the world, and the less the world needs to receive or embrace what the church has to say. Here are the truths I want to try and unpack from this passage. One, contrary to popular opinion, all religious expressions are not equal in God's eyes. It is a bit shocking to discover that our Heavenly Father is intolerant of some religious expression. He doesn't find it all of equal truth or worth or weight. In fact, right out of the gate, we're told that some expressions of faith are labeled as, do you see that word, worthless? If a person thinks he is religious... does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Please notice something in this verse that's easy to overlook. This is not a person pretending to be religious. That's an important point. James is not describing a hypocrite in this verse. A person pretending to be religious when he knows he or she is not. That's not what James is talking about. This person honestly believes he is religious. If anyone thinks he is religious. This person is sure in his heart he is pleasing God with his chosen religious path. His faith. Measured by our culture's standards... Any religion, practiced sincerely, is, is good enough. All the people that live around you in Newmarket, go and knock on their door and say, if a person practices his religion sincerely, is that good enough for God? And I'm just telling you, 90 out of 100 will say, of course. And so here we sit at 1000 Gorn Street, we open up our Bibles and we find out that God says, No. This person's wrong. His his sincerity is unacceptable to God. Here's a person who, in many ways, he looks to be godly. He has the appearance of something in his heart. But whatever he has, it, it isn't putting him in touch with the real God. It isn't being accepted by God. And what's particularly troubling for us is there's no indication this person is anything but sincere. He thinks he is religious. He's what the media today would, in in teeth-whitened, smiley, respective tones, call a person of faith. 
This is a person of faith. But there's a problem. While we may compliment him as a person of faith, God, the one whose opinion actually matters, says his religion is worthless. Now, you can't help but notice there's a world of difference between being a person of faith and someone whose faith is worthless. Worthless faith. This kind of religion is described throughout the New Testament, and so we won't be able to embrace all religion as equal. Let me just read some text to you quickly. Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 1 Corinthians 8, 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Galatians 6, 3. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. 2 Timothy 3, 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid, avoid those people. I'm not preaching on those texts. But it's just striking to me. There's a kind of religious observance, a kind of faith that that carries people along quite acceptably in this world and before their peers, but seems to be of very little account before God. Not all religious expressions are equal and acceptable to God. Point number two. If your religion doesn't make you Christ-like in speech, it has absolutely no worth in the eyes of Father God. That's in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. He deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. So here's a person. He's religious. But he's mean. He's religious, but he, he's constantly gossiping. He's religious, but he's not always truthful. Or maybe all the above, with his speech, with the things that he says. Strikingly, James says this is the first mark of worthless religion. Why? Why first? I mean, James could have picked any sin at all to show the emptiness of a person's religion. Why does he choose this particular one? Why zero in on the, on the words we say to each other? Well, first, he, he begins with this sin because it shows an unchanged heart more vividly than almost any other sin. See, James is trying to illustrate a man who, verse 26, deceives his heart. Here's a man who is not what he imagines himself to be. The man is not an atheist. He's not a bank robber. He's not gay. 
But for all of that, he's not as holy as he thinks. The, the Bible under his arm isn't changing his life. He's not humbly receiving the implanted word, verse 21. And so his, his religious rituals, his worship, his observances, they don't change his heart. They don't change his heart and they don't reach God's heart. There it is. They don't change his heart and they don't reach God's heart. So why does James start his list with the particular sin of speech? Perhaps James would remember his family member, Jesus, in Matthew twelve thirty four, saying, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So, so my words will show whether my religion is inward and powerful and heart-transforming or whether it's just outward and self-deceiving. It's like that little oil dipstick on your car's engine. Shows you what's deep down inside. Your words aren't just surface things. Oh, they may float only briefly on airwaves, produce sound waves, they reach your eardrum. That's how this is working scientifically. But they're far more than that. James says they are indicators. Your words are revealers of things beyond themselves. They show what no one else can see, what's going on on the inside, in the engine of your soul. So if your religion hasn't changed the way you talk to people and the way you talk about people, if your religion hasn't changed the way you talk to people and the way you talk about people, then the heart is still corrupt, regardless of your church attendance, your creed, your offering. And lest we think that James is maybe overstating things, we should read carefully the words of the Apostle John on the same subject. He said in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So he picks our sins of speech because they, they reveal out of the abundance of the heart. You can't see my heart. You can't see what God's doing in my heart. You don't know what goes on in my head. You don't know the thoughts that I think. But once I speak words, they reveal something of my heart. Secondly, we're still dealing with why he starts with sins of speech. Sins of speech are the best indicator of your spiritual health because they're one of the last sins to be rooted out of our lives. There is more of our true selves in our words than almost anything else we do. That's because sins of speech, sins of speech are very closely tied to the root sin of pride that's on the inside of our lives. I was looking at 3 John 
Third John just does not get read a whole lot. 9 and 10. And John writes, and he says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes... Now, here's what he says about Diotrephes. Who likes to put himself first. Now, even before you read any more, how does John know that? I mean, that's kind of an inward motive thing. He likes to put himself first. It seems like, John, John, how would you know that about Diotrephes? Who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority, so if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. What is he doing? Talking wicked nonsense against us. Not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Talking wicked nonsense. How does John know Diotrephes likes to put himself first? Because he can see the inward pride in the outward words. Human pride is invisible. Human speech isn't. The polluted speech grows out of this love of being first. And so the best indicator of a deep experience of the rich grace of God in my heart is it'll be a meekness and a graciousness, especially with those with whom I'm upset or disagree or irritated. But my words, my words will come out wisely and humbly and meekly and graciously. If that doesn't happen, then I don't know God's grace. Whether or not I'm gracious to others is best revealed in the words I say to them and the words I say about them. The words I say to them, the words I say about them. Okay, point number three. It's spiritually healthy to know when religion is worthless. It's a good thing. In verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. I I don't know of many churches or pastors or teachers who would say it like that anymore. I mean, we wouldn't want to come out and say anybody's religion was worthless, would we? You know what they would say back to you. They'd say Jesus says not to judge. And somehow James doesn't seem worried about that. No, we wouldn't say his religion is worthless. We might say, well, he has a bad temper. We might say he's kind of drifted from the Lord. We might say his life isn't totally surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. We might say he needs reviving in his soul. Uh, We might just say, you know what, he's just hurting from some difficult life experience. Worthless. Absolutely, totally dead, gone. Worthless, useless. James, what are you doing? People have feelings. But for people who are brave enough to face them, those words are actually designed to beg an important question. 
Worthless for what? Worthless for salvation, worthless for heaven, worthless for pleasing God, worthless for changing the heart, just worthless. There is a certain justice of God that that you can observe, you can see over the years. God, God judges deceit with more deceit. I'll touch on that next Sunday morning when we look at Fifty Shades of Gender. The Holy Spirit faithfully corrects the erring heart for a long, long time. He's He seems to be so infinitely patient with the repentant and the teachable. But but what you see over and over again in the Scriptures is the Holy Spirit never works with cagey people, slick people. He doesn't spend a lot of time arguing with them. He just leaves them. Caginess. It's as if there eventually comes a time when when God kind of just walks away and the lights go out on that stubborn, unrepentant heart and mind. You have to, to a certain measure, you have to love and embrace the truth or you lose a grasp of the truth. The only thing harder than finding the truth is keeping it. Always obey the first promptings of the Holy Spirit. It gets less likely that you'll listen as time goes by. And so, this person, verse 26, he deceives his heart. I don't know about you, but those have to be three of the scariest words in the Bible. You'll see them, actually, in in verse 22, and then repeated again in verse 26. But be doers of the word, not hearers only. You see this one? Deceiving yourselves. If anyone thinks he is religious, does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. So heart and self, same thing. So so here's the complex truth I'm trying to make clear from these powerful verses. They aren't easy words for for comfortable people like us to get our heads and hearts around, the truth is kind of pungent. You only control the responses of your heart to truth at the early stages of hearing it. Build the habit of dodging and dancing and your capacity to make up your own mind about truth, it starts to slip from your hands. Other forces take over. That's, that's this edgy truth that James is kind of sharpening for us. Four. To be clean before God, you have to be clean in your motives. Religion that is pure and undefiled, and here are the important words, before God. So he's just said, if anyone thinks... If anyone thinks his religion is good, that's his assessment. And now he's going to say, now let's, now let's look at it from God's perspective. 
Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You notice that contrast, don't you? 26, if anyone thinks he is religious. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. There's all the difference in the world in those two verses. There's the way I look at things and there's the way God looks at things and the point is simple. God's viewpoint counts. James is driving home a very basic point here. God's perspective is the only one that matters in the long run, so I'd better learn to view things from his perspective now. However jarring and unsettling it might be, ultimately that's the gracious way. That's the wise way. We need to line up with what he's looking for in our lives. That's why we're here, right? Right? We, we want to find out, how does, how does God want me to flesh out my faith? If, if we're not interested in that, then let's go bowling. So we want to find out what matters to God. Not what we think, what he thinks. What he thinks is important. What he thinks our lives should take the shape of. Two beautiful words, he says. Religion that is pure, undefiled. Pure and undefiled. He's going to talk about what to do in a minute, but now he's talking about inwardly. Religion that's pure and undefiled, verse 27. There, there. No desire for show. No carelessly going through religious ceremonies. Not trying to look good in front of other people. Always looking to the state of the heart, not governed by fads of this world or the opinions of others. Always looking to the will of the Father. That's why he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Before God. You know, if you look at so many of the great characters of Scripture, you'll find that they kept this idea of before God. Pure and undefiled before God. They kept that at the center of their mind, their perspective. David's such a great example. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I've set the Lord... See the verbs? I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. He's not talking now about something the Lord did. He's talking about something he does. I have set the Lord always before me. I, I put him there all the time. Here's something else. Same idea from David again. I keep your precepts and testimonies. Now notice the difference. For all my ways are before you. I have set the Lord. I have set the Lord before me. And all of my ways are before you. 
you will make very few mistakes in your Christian walk if you do those two things. That's how you build a heart for God that is pure and undefiled, true, undeceived, fruitful. So motive. Point number five. Religion isn't measured by experiences gained, but by service rendered. Verse 27 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. And he doesn't talk now about an experience that he's had. To visit orphans and windows, widows. You can visit windows if you want. but <laughs> To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So he's going to wrap up. The, 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 the two parts to religion that God values. And they are, simply, practical acts of love and service and constant, alert separation from the contaminating influences of the world. That's what God's looking for. And I think most people understand it. But what James wants to deal with is the relationship between those two parts because it's, it's a relationship that is often overlooked. If your religion is pure, it will make your heart like God's and the whole mission of God then is to reclaim those who are totally helpless, needy, lost, hurting, confused. So, so the fatherless and the widows, he doesn't mean just those people. Certainly they're important. They're, they represent those who find themselves helpless in the world. Those who live on the edge of things. Maybe in third world countries. Inner city. Unemployed. Poor. Addicted to drugs or alcohol. Make no mistake about it. Our heart must beat the way God's does for those people. Avoiding sin is very important. But avoiding sin is not the same thing as serving the Lord. I've used this illustration before, but we, it just betrays. You say, how are the kids? And you go, oh, they're serving the Lord. What that means is they, they go to church, they're Christians, they're not in prison... Uh, kids are serving the Lord. But serving the Lord used to mean not just being a Christian. It used to mean serving the Lord. Attending services is important. We're glad you're here. This is where we gain strength and direction, but this isn't where we do our serving in this sanctuary. There's, there's a whole church out there. There's a whole community out there. You heard about some of the needs this morning. And the problem is, someone gets up and says, we need this for VBS, we, we need this for the nursery, we need this for ushers, we need this for church in the city. We, and, and people sit in the pew and they think that it's optional. And James says, not if you want pure religion, it's not. Working for the Lord is serving the Lord. Giving is very important. We're talking about money right now in our church. But we in 
relatively affluent southern Ontario, we need to remember that giving to the Lord is not the same as serving the Lord. God wants something else besides your check. I'm sorry. God wants something much closer to your heart than your money. He wants your time. He wants your time. We're almost surprised to hear God would dare demand our time. We understand he may require stewardship of our wealth, but my weekends, my Saturdays, my evenings, family time, leisure time, well, those... Pastor Don, those are, I've worked hard for those things. They are mine by right. And because these are some of the most precious things to us, God will call for some or all of them. It's part of the way he tests the limits you and I place on his lordship. The issue of your time is the way God tests the limits you put on his lordship. There's no test if what Jesus asks for isn't precious to us. Let me just give you an illustration of this. I hesitated to use the illustration because someone's going to misunderstand what I'm saying, and I'm going to try and make sure you don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm, I'm talking now about when God... When God calls specifically for chunks of our time that would take us away from something else precious to us, okay? That, that's what I'm talking about. I talked with a pastor in the last couple weeks. You don't know him, not in our denomination. I talked with a pastor in the last couple weeks who was explaining to me how he is canceling Sunday worship, moving it to Wednesday night, And when I asked him why, this is the answer that bugged me. Not moving the the worship time. You can worship at different times. I get it. It was the logic that troubled me. When I said why, he explained that the people have been coming to him and they want their Sundays for family time. And he was sure more people would come out on Wednesday night church than Sunday morning church. Again, don't anybody leave this room thinking Pastor Don says the only time you can worship is Sunday. That is not my point. I chatted that same week with a couple. They don't come to this church. You don't know them. But they are leaving the church they are in. And they're going to another church that worships exclusively on Saturday night. Now, there's nothing wrong with church on Saturday night. That's not my point at all. Everybody understand that? It's not my point at all. It was the way they phrased their reason for the change. They said that they could, in their their own words, they could free up their Sunday for the kids' soccer league. After all, 
And this was the question they asked. What difference does it make to Jesus whether you worship him on Saturday night or Sunday? And of course, the seemingly obvious answer to that question is it makes no difference to Jesus whatsoever. That's not the problem. Is that true, Pastor Don? It makes no difference to Jesus whatsoever? Well, in a way, yeah, it's true. I can love and honor and praise Jesus with his people Sunday. I can do it Wednesday. I can do it Saturday. I can do it Thursday. That isn't the issue. But there is a deep issue here, and it's a really important one. Let's just now pretend, okay? I don't know any of this. Let's just pretend now. Let's pretend that the church that freed up Sunday really took off. Everybody came Wednesday night or Saturday night. Attendance grew. Treasurer was happy. Giving was up. Everything's great with that, right, Pastor Don? No. No. Something went wrong. As good as that growth is, is everything a gain in this picture? Was anything lost at all? And I would argue that there was something very precious lost. What happens when people come to worship Jesus because it has been made to fit their schedule? As the numbers go up, what happens to the worship of people who got everything they liked about Jesus without having to give up what was obviously more important to them? I mean, that's why the attendance grew, right? People got what they wanted, and now they're happy with it. The people supported the decision. They voted in favor with their attendance at the newly scheduled worship. The pastor, the board, or whoever decided more people would come if they, if they didn't have to choose between corporate worship and something else that was very precious to them. They removed the choice. You have both. So there's a solution to the dilemma. Simply take that choice out of the way and everybody wins. The church wins. More people. My kids win. I spend my whole Sunday with them. They get to play soccer. Jesus doesn't mind because we still come and sing praises to his name. And I want to argue with all my might that I believe that something very precious was still silently and painlessly lost. Primarily, I lost because no matter how many songs I sing on Wednesday or Saturday or how high I raise my hands, nothing will ever erase the fact that whatever words come out of my mouth in praise, Jesus came in second. I'm happy in my newly scheduled worship because I didn't have to choose my schedule over devotion to Jesus. I got it both. But note carefully, the only reason I didn't have to choose wasn't love for Jesus. 
The only reason I didn't have to choose was the church spared me from making that decision. It allowed me to dodge facing the deepest love of my heart. Okay, there has to be. There simply has to be people here thinking, Pastor Don, what in heaven's name are you doing? Why are you making such a big deal of this? And please... Be patient for a minute more. Try and absorb this lesson. Because there will come times, other times, in your Christian life when Jesus will call you to something deeper of himself by calling you away from something precious to you. That's going to happen repeatedly. And your church will have trained you to believe there are other options besides making the tough choice. You will come to believe there are other ways you can have it all. And the idea will come from the church. Remember the key point here. I'm not talking about church services. I'm simply saying... Religion isn't primarily measured by experience gained, but by service rendered. And, and what I'm arguing here is religion that pleases God will make a pronounced claim on your time. Religion that pleases God will make a pronounced claim on your time. Six. As you serve the Lord, do it with a holy heart and life. The last part of 27b. So it'll take time. Time to serve. Time to minister. That's a requirement of pure and undefiled religion. It takes time. Secondly, keep oneself unstained from the world. How seriously do you take the danger of being polluted by the world? Do do you feel you've moved beyond that maybe with just the sheer experience gathered over the years of accumulated walk with Jesus? Maybe you're in the ministry, you're on the board, you serve in some capacity. How seriously do you take the danger of being polluted by the world? Because because the pull of the world is absolutely constant. It, It affects everyone. It isn't something you can limit to one specific moment or a single action. It just comes like gravity. It just comes imperceptibly. The way the sun gives you a burn on a hot day when you're not thinking about it. The assignment of discipleship is to create counterweights to indulgent personal inclinations. It's to keep the the gravitational pull of the things of God stronger than the gravitational pull of the world. You, you don't inhale spiritual grace like oxygen. It takes, it takes in the wise words of the hymn writer, we don't sing it all that often, take time to be holy. And if you don't know that song, look around you, find someone with white hair, because they were raised singing those songs. Take time to be holy.
Time to be holy. Boy, Pastor Don, I, I thought God was the one who made me holy. What do you mean, take time to be holy? And the hymn writer caught a very profound truth in a nutshell. All the talk you hear about church attendance, baptism, Bible study, Christian education, time in prayer, devotions, tithing. You won't take any of that very seriously if all you hear, and it's likely if you're young that this tends to be what you hear, if all you hear is some prudish old religious legalism that you've long been delivered from and grown out of. All of these things are used by the Spirit to create counterweights. A time to cleanse and neutralize the pull and stain of the world on your life. It really can't be done any other way. It's not magic. James knows that service and purity, they just they cut against the grain in some ways. And they have to be listed together and they have to be practiced together. Service without purity won't save. That's just morality. Purity without service is just wasted and aesthetic. So the next time your phone rings or you get an email or a text and it's Julie or Kathy, Pastor Chad, Mr. Kelly, they want you to work with youth or your neighbor needs a ride to church or some senior needs her lawn cut, will you see it as just one more grab into your time? Or perhaps, just perhaps, you can look beneath the surface and you can say, there it is, an email coming as a gift of God to build pure and devoted religion into my heart. Let's pray.